So who's going first? Paper, rock, scissor. Cockroach, nuclear bomb, foot. No. <laughs> no one wants to play that with me ever. It's not a game. It is. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Amy Donaldson. And I'm Hunter Mulcair. Two Shrinks is a podcast all about psychology. Today, we wanted to put our psych brains to a little something for our fellow healthcare workers, the doctors, nurses and allied health who have been doing it tough over the last two years. Our plan is to talk through a presentation Hunter developed for his colleagues, how to recognise if you're burnt out, finding your own ways of coping, and why it is that sometimes specific patients push our buttons. We're hoping it's full of practical strategies you can apply now. There's not a yoga retreat or mindfulness exercise in sight. Before we jump in, as always, we'd love it if you could rate or review the show, or just tell someone you know about it. It gives us a real kick to know people are listening and spreading the word. So do you want to kick us off? Yep. So this is going to be a version of a talk I've given a number of times, Amy. As you know, as a psychologist in a hospital, you get asked to talk to people about burnout and fatigue, right? And this is Hunter's take on it, mm-hmm. right? So really what this talk is going to talk about is how to recognize when a patient is impacting on you. Right, so this is relevant not just for psychologists. This is a talk they give to nurses, a talk they give to physiotherapists, OTs, uh, medical staff, anyone. So anyone who works with people. So if you're a, if you work in a nursing home, mm. right, or if you work uh, in a mental health centre or anything, and and this what is not just relevant to COVID. This is relevant to anyone working with any patient at all. Right, mm. it's just it happens that we. Uh, we thought we would do it now because the, the pressure's on mm. with health healthcare workers and uh, we're all a bit under the pump. And a couple of colleagues had messaged us and said, could you do a, do an episode or that would be good to talk about. So where I'm going to start is emotional burnout and fatigue, right? Extremely common experience in healthcare workers, but it's not always something that's talked about mm. formally, right? So what I wanted to do is to give you some ideas about how we, me as a psychologist, understand it. And, and and this is a, I want people to be able to listen to this and, and to be reflective, right? And I'll be interested, Amy, in your take mm-hmm. as I go through this. So this isn't the current state of the literature yeah. topic, right? No, far from it. Three components to burnout. Emotional exhaustion. So that's when you're overextended and depleted, emotionally depleted physically. Right, you know, so that's the you know you've just got nothing left in the tank, mm. either physically or emotionally. Right, that's often when we go and self soothe. Yeah, some couple of beers and some chip corn chips into the day. Right. Yeah. Depersonalization, so that's cynicism and detachment from your job. Right, like lack of empathy. Mm. Um, you know, when we talked in the crying pod about the funeral workers sort of having no empathy for yeah. the patient, having that sort of black humor yeah. and things to cope. Yeah, and, and sort of viewing people derogatory when they're, hmm. you know, when you would normally have empathy for it, right? And a lack of personal accomplishments, the third bit. So it's just feeling ineffective, feeling incompetent. So, that, hmm. so the research has identified those things, right? 
And how do you know if you're being burnt out? Well, I mean, if I said to you, you, you know, I'm feeling burnt out or so-and-so's burnt out, what comes to mind for you? I have an image in my head of someone who seems scattier than normal, who's kind of missing things that they wouldn't normally miss, mm-hmm. who seems a bit more irritable or frustrated, mm-hmm. like their tolerance isn't quite yep. there. And a sort of tiredness is what comes up yeah. in my head of kind of like just getting through the day. Yeah, I, I get a sense of like just like not much energy. Yeah. Yeah, the skeleton of the job will get done. Yeah. So what the notes I've got here, like clinician doubt. Mm. So so that what we talked about was just observable, but like it's difficult to often know that you're, you're burnt out. When you're burnt out, you often doubt yourself a lot as a clinician doubts themselves. Often what you see in, and, and often what you hear in colleagues is that they've got like a sense of guilt and then like this excessive sense of responsibility, mm. which then drives them to overwork, right? And then they start to ignore all their own needs and that leads to people being burnt out, mm. right? It's sort of a self-sacrificing thing. So what they, what the researchers are like, well, it's like, you know, this is resolved in a general way by countering many of the causes, Reduce your workload, increase control, uh, more personal goals at work. Stuff, mm. right, right. So the thing about that, right, is it's really boring. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. of, like, no shit, Sherlock. Yeah. If you reduce someone's workload, increase the control and increase rules, of course their stress levels are better. Everyone knows that. Mm. You don't need to be a psychologist or a researcher. Mm. And it's very frustrating to read... Um, read you know, the people who write on, on workplace stress and stuff like that. It's like, this is like some amazing thing. It's like, yeah, you know, if you don't mm. press on the on the bit that's sore, you got your pain improves. Like, yeah. 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 Worked and there's that, something... Already worked that out. <laughs> there's something frustrating in that of like, of course it works, but also there's a reason why that's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's not as simple as just, we didn't occur to you. To yeah. take those things. So, so my talk is not going to be about how to do those things, mm-hmm. really. So, what what I want to th- get people to think about, if you're someone who works with people, patients, right, is to think about triggers for emotional burnout, right? And so, so you can have the individual patient triggers and you can have the institutional. So, the institutional is high workloads, challenges with the admin side of work, managerial pressure on you. So at the moment, and this is not a criticism of a, of any workplaces, but this is the state of play. There's a high workload mm-hmm. on many wards. There's challenges for the admin side of work, and there's pressure from people to to get stuff done, mm. right? And you as a worker don't have much control over those things. No, right. And to, to the credit of many health organisations at the moment, they're actually reducing the admin, the stats side of work mm. or reducing like non-essential tasks to free up clinician time because we they know, right, that, okay, COVID surge is on, blah, 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 right? Takes a lot of time. Yeah, and, and it's been really interesting to watch health organisations actually respond to in a way that I've never seen mm. health organisations respond. It's been really, it's been really great to see. You're someone who thinks about the well-being of the workforce, as, mm. as I do at the hospital. But um, what I want to talk about is individual patient triggers for emotional burnout, right? So this is complex patients. You know, someone who's got a particular history of a presenting complaint that, that pushes your buttons. Patients that are long-stay patients, mm-hmm. right? So in, within a hospital. 
or you know when you get someone who like the outcomes are not as expected so you know they're not improving mm. or you know uh, a patient becomes palliated so what that means is a cancer patient they might need to they go oh hang on this is not going to be curable mm. so we, we, we're going to stop treatment or it, it could be chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and then like no actually we can't we can't do any more treatment. Mm. Everything is going to be symptom control and palliative care. Palliative care. So what that you know. So basically, we're not trying to cure the disease, right? We're trying to slow the decline, or we're we're trying to ease the decline on someone. So which is if you've become attached to a patient, mm. or there's particular elements around that circumstance that's particularly tragic. That can be quite hard as a healthcare worker, right? Mm. If you're working with patients who got low mood, right? continually that's that can be pretty hard mm. particularly if you're not trained in it but even if you're a psychologist who's got a caseload full of depressed patients mm. right that can be pretty wearing i what comes to mind is my first time working with a caseload of people who all had schizophrenia and mm. part of schizophrenia is not much facial expression yeah and because i tend to and psychologists do mirror back what was happening yeah at the end of the day I was finding myself really flat as I was driving home and it yep. took me weeks to realize that hang on a minute I'm not actually feeling flat I've just been mirroring that mm. flatness all day mm-hmm. and I need to do something to bring myself up excellent yeah, yeah 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 and so that's what I'm about to talk about awesome. right because because you as a worker can't control the environment mm. but we can control how we respond to it and people do not get trained on do not talk about how to deal with their patients. No. Right? And so this is my talk about that. So the universal truth of healthcare is that some patients impact us more than others. Yes. Right? But the reasons why vary. I feel like that there's a mixture of things that play into like personal circumstances and issues that you've had before with other people particular types of even personalities like you know people that you had run-ins with at school or that pushed your buttons or I heard a few colleagues say oh I really struggle with so-and-so because they've got the same name as someone that you know they used to date or something like that and it just pushes a button and it's not really about the person like it's not it's not something that they can change or that there's anything wrong with them it just pushes a button yeah I mean the first point I've got there is they remind us of someone in our life, mm. right? So they remind you of a family member who you like and if something bad's happened to them, that's, you know, that can be kind Hard. of triggering, mm. right? You know, and I've seen, I've worked with interpreters and I've seen them struggle interpreting my session with, with them because they come from the same cultural community as the, the, the patient and, you know, they clearly start to identify with this patient could be my grandfather or mm. grandmother or, or, or whatever. And, yeah, you know, and you can see that the, the poor interpreter is struggling to deal with that. And, and then the other, other thing I was going to say was, you know, you might like someone. Mm. So psychologists, we, we try and don't say that out loud very often. But, you know, there's some people we get along with, some people mm. you like, right? And, just and, like in any human interaction. Yeah, it's like any human interaction. Some people you just click with. And, and you know, nurses, doctors, uh, allied health, whomever, same thing, right? Those people, when those bad things happen to those people, it's mm. really tough, mm. right? Or if their story is sad. So, th- so, so all of these things there are empathy and identification would be the, 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 the topic there. Mm. You might have the belief that 
if you get your intervention right, that that will help them survive. Mm. So I, I used to work in drug and alcohol and I found that, personally, I found that a much more difficult, emotionally stressful than working with cancer patients mm. because in my head, I had a thing of, if I do my job right, they will stop drinking. Mm. And, and their life will improve. Whereas if I work cancer patients, then as a psychologist, like I can't cure the cancer. No, you're not. Um, it doesn't feel like you're as responsible no. for how they go. No. And, and the times where it has been a little bit more stressful, although I've got, I know how to deal with it now, is this person's not presenting. Can, mm. can you help us get them into the hospital? For treatment or something like that, that they're not. Yeah. You know, they're anxious about the treatment or, or they've got some other psychological barriers that are presenting there. If you have that pressure, if you have that belief, like, so you could easily see it, like, if a nurse or a doctor is going, hey, you know, if I, if I just, if I just read up enough or if I just get the medication on time or if I just do this thing, then they'll be okay. That's mm. a lot of pressure. It's very black and white. If a patient doesn't have anyone or they're socially isolated, a colleague of mine approached me about some of this stuff. To, to do a talk to their department because they had worked with somebody who had, they'd ended it up in, during COVID, ended up being probably the person that the patient had the most contact with mm. and that had been wearing mm. on them. And that one in particular in COVID times, you know, no one's able to visit hospitals or anything like that. And you can be in hospital for a long time, whether it's for COVID or something else. Yep. And not having any visitors, not having any face-to-face communication with your family yeah. or friends who would normally take a fair load off that kind of day-to-day reassurance and whatever that then falls to But, but also like just daily and, contact. Yeah. Right? Just daily contact. Yeah. The other one is when a person triggers distress in others as a defense mechanism. Mm. So in English, what that means is that sometimes you will there'll be a patient and then you'll feel really shit after seeing them. Mm. Right. And uh, I'll give a personal example. I was working with a a young chap who had cancer and I noticed after a couple of sessions, every time I felt really like, I remember one time I was like, I'm just going to go for a walk and just have a little cry. Mm. (laughs) Right. And which is particularly unusual. Like, you know, it's like that doesn't happen. And I was just like, oh, you know, and I was sort of thinking about it, you know, and I was kind of doing this introspection and trying to figure out like what buttons are being pushed and who does this person remind me of? And I couldn't come up with anything. And eventually I randomly said something to, randomly said something to one of my other colleagues, social worker, I think it was about, oh, you know, I, you know, I saw so-and-so before and she said, oh, every time I see him, I just feel so shit. <laughs> and I was like, oh, hang on. This is not, this is not about me. It's not a personal thing to you. No, this is what this person does with everybody. Mm. And and the way that I understood that in this case was that he was communicating the way he felt, like almost like infecting us with mm. his emotion, right? But he wasn't presenting with that emotion to us. Yeah. And eventually he and I had a discussion around that because he, he, he would make lots of jokes in therapy. And I said, well, what's that, what's that about? Mm. And, and so we had a discussion about like, well, he hides his feelings, right? And that's what was going on. But... That took a bit of detective work, mm. right? And so if you're someone that, and I think very much, like I think about psychology all the time, mm. do a psychology pod in my, <laughs> my spare time, a yeah. little bit of a psych nerd. Yeah. So if it took me a little while to figure out, mm. like, you know, if you're not attuned to that, it's very hard to pick up. Especially if it's something like that 
where it's sort of indirect rather than dealing with something like a patient who's yelling at you all the time or something Mm. like that where you can Mm. kind of go, oof, I feel attacked. That's a different feeling. Yep, yep. So what I say is that it's important to know what emotional buttons you have, what your weak spots are, Mm. and so you can counteract. So this is, uh, you have to develop up your own kind of list of things. So this is not the, so just do yoga or mindfulness, <laughs> you know, um, at lunchtime and, and get outside and, and blah, blah, blah. You know, all these kinds of corporate well-being kinds of solutions mm. that are rammed down everyone's throats. No, nah, mm. I'm not. That, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm selling here. What I'm selling here is getting you to think about what buttons go on for you. And why is it that certain certain people trigger you? And what are the um, and how do you know when you're not doing so well? I mm. mean, so I mean, I'll ask you perhaps a little bit of a disclosed question mm. here, Amy. But like, how do you know if you're getting a little bit burnt out? Like, what's something that goes on for you that you notice, like either at work or at home? I'm more distractible, so I'll shift between multiple different tasks and not get anything done. Yeah. There's not really focus there. And I get irritated about things that are kind of minor. An email system will crash and I'll have to restart it. Mm. It only takes a minute. It's not actually that much of a big deal. But I'll grumble about it to myself for a substantial period of time. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... It's about like learning that. So, and healthcare workers, and in particular certain groups of them, particularly doctors, uh, physiotherapists, um, psychologists, mm. anyone who is a high achiever plus caring, yeah, right, like that leaves us over to high expectations about our own performance and feeling failure when things don't go right, mm. right. So you expect a lot, and then things don't go right for whatever reason because it's difficult Mm. or it's repetitively things have gone wrong because it's a bad patch or whatever or and then you start to feel failure very easily Mm. right and then it's burnout or if you're like self-sacrificing so that's like you're putting your own needs second so it's like you know i i don't have time for lunch today Mm. right oh yeah i forgot that one yeah not eating not eating or like i'm just gonna like i'm just gonna work back late Mm. i'm just gonna get this stuff finished off Right, so I'm constantly having discussions with certain people in my life around like, so do you think you might need to leave on time today, mm. or like, you know, so have you had lunch? What's going on there? So the next thing I've got there is like warning signs, right? So I mean, I was just talking about behavioural, mm. but what I want people to think about as I'm talking about this is like your emotional reaction to a patient. Mm. So this might seem odd to someone who doesn't work in healthcare. So apologies for that. But like, although, yeah, tell me, I'm thinking about the times when say I've spoken to teachers working in a school and they'll be like, I don't know why, but every time I interact with that kid, I feel frustrated, whatever. It's a similar kind of pattern Mm -hmm. of like not necessarily knowing that person that well, but them pushing your buttons. Yeah. So, so before I was just talking about like a general, what do you know, notice about yourself? Like mm. you said, oh, you know, destructible or whatever, right? But like what I'm going to think about now is like specific to a patient, right? So when you have a strong or absent emotional reaction, mm. right? So this can be three things. Positive. You like the patient. Like yeah. you like them more than the average bear, mm. right? You want to go out of your way to help them. You want to go out of your way to help them mm. or you look at the list and you think, huh, yeah, yeah. They're, they're you in. want them on the start of your 
week so that you have a good week. Yeah, yeah. Or, or you kind of like you're pleasantly surprised and you and you don't want to let you acknowledge it to yourself, but you're actually quite pleased to see them, mm. quite excited to see them. Yeah. Right? I'm not saying it's like a sexual thing. Mm. It's like a, I like them. Mm. Interesting. But then the other side is negative, right? You find the patient frustrating. You find them upsetting. You find them irritating. You find them depressing. You see their name in your diary and you go, oh, God, uh, not today. Yeah. They're the ones that always turn up, <laughs> right? You don't like them. Mm. Like you actually kind of be like, you know what? I don't think I actually really like you as a person. Mm. The third is absent. So mm. people miss out on this one, right? But this is like you're numb to someone. You this don't, sounds so telling. You don't care. <laughs> yeah. You don't care about them. It's neither here nor there. Mm. Right? You don't put any effort in. You forget to put their appointment in your diary. Yep. Yep. You don't do any prep before mm. you go and see the patient. Right? Yeah. Oh, whatever. It'll be fine. The thing about this is not easy to work out, right? I mean, you would know this, like you're nodding, but, you know, it can sneak up on you. Mm. You cannot realize you don't like someone. You cannot realize that someone's, that you're absent. You cannot realize that you dislike someone. It's kind of like, you know, if you're swimming, say, in the ocean, right? And you swim away from a cold patch, mm-hmm. right? Or you you find yourself lying in the shallows and it's a bit more comfortable there because it's, and it's actually just because it's, it's, it's warmer, mm. right? It, we gravitate naturally to it or we gravitate away from it. Mm. And so that's difficult to, to work out. And so what you need to do is you need to kind of understand what, what it is that you do, mm. like and when is it and what, what is it that triggers it. Or, you know, and usually what we need to do is we need to talk about it with somebody else. Yeah. Right. So which is the example I gave before about like, oh, that patient. And then suddenly I had this like insight into what's going on. So when you act differently to a patient is the behavioral marker. Mm. When is it you do something different? Doing too much or too little. One time I, I remember calling somebody on behalf of a patient and I was dialing the phone and I'm like, what am I doing? Like mm. internally, like I mean, it's not a cool call, so I need to see it through. <laughs> but like internally, I was just like, what am I doing? This I, isn't... I never do this. Mm. Like this is unusual. Mm. What's going on here? So is it that you're just getting some more resources for somebody or you're advocating for them? Right? Kind of broken this down into a couple of common problems that people kind of can experience. I'm sure there's more, right? Three common problems. Number one, taking on a patient's set of problems. So what I call this is taking work home in a psychological sense. Mm. So you're not actually taking pieces of paper home and working on it. You are thinking about the patient after hours, Mm. right? Or when you get up before you get in. Yeah. 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 You, you know, you're worrying about a specific patient frequently. You're, you're making special efforts to help you. You're thinking that no one else is going to be able to help them as well as you. Mm. Or you become friends with them. Well, you know, in some cases, you become attracted to them. Mm. Right? Emotional involvement is triggered when your own internal psychological buttons are pressed. So, so this is your vulnerable child mode. Yeah. If you've ever heard me talk about schema therapy before. So this is like little Hunter, little Amy, the mm. part that feels lots of emotion that's activated. Or the, the 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 critical part of ourselves, which is the, you know, you've got to Hunter, you've got you've you've got to do this stuff. If you do this stuff right, then they'll get better. Mm. The, the the demanding side. Does that mm. make sense? Yeah. Yeah. If you don't follow these rules then things aren't gonna go well. Yeah. 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 So this can be specific to you or it's the effect that the patient has on everybody mm. because of their personality or their situation. So the way that you get around this or the way that I say, and I'd be interested to see what you think, Amy, but like is 
this requires insight into your own thoughts and behaviors, right? And it's the best way, as I was saying before, is to talk it out and explore why it is that you are feeling and acting this way. Right, and so you need to kind of talk about that with either colleagues mm. or with friends, mm. preferably both, mm. right? Because a colleague is going to be like, is going to give you a different emotional reaction, mm. right? So, you know, if I talk to you, Amy, about like, oh, yeah, I was working with someone who had, you know, cognitive difficulties and it was really challenging thing, you'd be like, oh, yeah, it's really difficult to do an assessment with someone who keeps forgetting things or mm. something, you know, you'd have this like clinicians kinds of thing, yeah. right? Whereas someone else would be like, oh my God, you had to do that? Like yeah. that's really like, and that would be, you know, like there'd be this, like, so clinicians I say are uh, not human. We don't give <laughs> human reactions, yeah. you know? Yeah. We kind of go, yeah, oh, it's really difficult when they've got like a long history of trauma because it takes ages to get all the history down, yeah. right? Whereas your friends are like, We'd be like, oh my God, you heard what in that yeah. session? Yeah. Right. And both of those reactions are really important mm. for you to work it through, right? So that you, because the emotional reaction is the relieving, like that's the friend's reaction who doesn't, not, not a clinician. They, you know, make you feel normal. Mm. But then the clinician reaction is they understand your dilemma, your unique dilemma in the, in the workforce. Yeah. yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. Can you relate? I, I can. And I'm also thinking in particular for psychologists, I feel like it's, you know, it's probably the same for other healthcare workers, but given the amount of focus on confidentiality and stuff for psychologists, that getting that friend perspective often is really hard because mm. it's not like we can go, oh, I, you know, spoke to this person and they told me all of these things and we can recount what it was that pushed our buttons. We, we can't really do that. Often it's kind of like a a vague, yeah. I had trouble at work today yeah. kind of. You have to be so careful yeah. that it limits those opportunities yeah. to reflect with friends. You often yeah. end up then doing it with other clinicians or your supervisor yeah. because that's what you're left with. Yeah. And it's much safer to do. Exactly. Yeah. But it yeah, kind and, of... And, that, that's, and in my experience, psychologists don't really talk about their work. No. Like, I don't talk about it with friends and family no. particularly like um and and we talk generally i just talk with other clinicians yeah it's, at most you might say today was pretty tough yeah yeah it was just busy yeah yeah exactly so th- i mean that therein lies a problem mm. right like if you're a stockbroker and you've had a busy day and you lost a lot of money or whatever you can probably say that mm. i mean you depending you, on who you're talking to and, and yeah much detail yeah. yeah 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 exactly but like like, you know, and I think that this is a problem for doctors and, and anyone who works in the healthcare system. I think it also goes part way to explain why we often have a lot of friends who are healthcare workers, because you can get a little bit of that friend response with the understanding as well. There's yep. kind of some merging of those two. Yep. And, I, and I, so I think one of the things I think about is if you are speaking to somebody talking about your day or the patients and it's with a colleague, mm. then specify to them what it is you need. Yeah. Right? You know, if they start to react in one way, which is like, oh, you know, it's really difficult. So, no, no, I really need you to tell me, like, is that really tough? Mm. <laughs> you know, am I normal to feel this way? Blah, blah, blah. Mm. Like, specify. Are you wanting the clinician mm. inhuman response or are you wanting the human response? Are the you wanting response? the, <laughs> yeah. hey, can I just vent because this is yeah. pissing me off? Yeah. Or I really need to talk through this difficult it's like, case. It's like, man, it's like, yeah. it's like I, ne- I need to talk through this difficult case because I need to know what to do. Yeah. Or 
I need to talk through this difficult case because it's really upset me. Hmm. And that's just a general good tip for life. Yeah, like, look, gen- <laughs> look gen- generally, but like, yeah. so, you know, so o- over time, you learn your pressure points, right? And it's not foolproof, hmm. but you do learn which patients make Are you react likely. this way. And then often, I think often you kind of, you'll recognize that a certain patient will make you react a certain way and then you kind of go in armed a little mm. bit you kind of watch yourself a bit more mm. common problem number two taking on the hospital's problems <laughs> or taking on your organization's problems yeah. if i don't see them no one else will mm. you know what i should stay back uh, you know I, these guys aren't going to get it done or like mm. if i don't get this paperwork done then then the next day mm. the team's going to be behind mm. and i know i'm not in but i just would like to leave it ready yeah the wait list is looking so long, I really should take on an extra person. I guess I could oh, fit them in. That's a good one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Mm. So that that's our critical parent, mm. our internal critical parent, right? So the, the response to that is like to develop a realistic appraisal of what you can achieve in an eight-hour day. Mm. How many phone calls? What's passable? Not A grade. Yeah. What is a P? And what I is, think... What is 51%? With that one, the bit that clinicians always forget when they're trying to come up with a plan is the paperwork side of things. Mm. We always map out, oh, well, I've got this many hours so I can see this many clients Mm. and then forget about Mm. that thing that takes up a fair amount of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the processing of referrals, the the writing up assessment reports. Even in COVID times, the kind of, changing of ppe right. or hand washing yeah. or all of that kind of stuff that yeah 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 and you know calling people blah, blah blah right so you know we have these expectations and we and by by and large we expect that we can do more than we can mm. right and then we're under pressure but the 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 what is possible right mm. and, and people hate it when i have this conversation with them mm. like straight up there i'm like they're like i'm like what's what's possible what's 51 percent? not mm. a grade what's a passable day what's standard is that okay okay yeah. did you do that today mm. walk out the door and run through your day in your head and say how many patients did you see and was that enough mm. are you going to be fired for the amount of patients you saw today yeah yes or no mm. if it's a no then you did okay yeah Yep, right. On to the next. <laughs> on, and, and allow yourself to feel good and challenge the part of you that's like, oh, no, but I should have done more. No, did enough. Mm-hmm. What could have you done more? Could have you done more? Could you ever, like, it's very rare that you can leave a job a day and go, I couldn't, mm, I think I couldn't have done any more. Mm. Like, I mean, realistically. Yeah. Every meal that you cook could always be better. Yeah, right? like, absolutely. So the questions I have are, did you do it today? Did you pass today? Mm. Second question. Is it your responsibility to fix the health system? Third question. Would your workplace become a smouldering ruin if you didn't turn up for one week? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, the, 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 yeah. the classic thing I sort of say to people, is like for people who come back to work and I know that they take on a lot of stuff, it's like, mm, were you surprised to see the hospital still standing? <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. We weren't here, but it's all the things kept going. Mm. Right. And you know what? I am a bit of a smart ass, yeah. but like, the point is we don't carry everything. No. Right? And if you are, then you need to address that. Mm. <laughs> like if you are actually the one that's responsible for the hospital functioning, then you need to do some delegation. <laughs> <laughs> right? I think if you're having 
trouble with that one of setting expectations and working out what actually is realistic in a day going through that list with someone else is really good I had a supervisor do that with me about a year ago I was doing way too much and she made me map out my week and for each thing she got me to tell her exactly why it was it deserved to be in my calendar (laughs) and actually having to justify that to someone else who was kind of like but that doesn't make sense why are you doing that or I don't see any room in your day for you to pee where are you going to do that having someone who really was quite firm with me then went it made me realize how unreasonable I was being on myself that that stuff actually wasn't doable that I was you know putting five minutes for notes when actually it took 15 or whatever Mm. it was that then left me feeling incompetent and like I wasn't keeping up when actually yeah because if you're not keeping up you feel incompetent but if you're not allocating enough time Mm. you're setting yourself up for it you're setting yourself up for failure and so what happens is you feed that incompetence Mm. belief Right. And I can talk myself into thinking that I've been reasonable quite a lot, but having to do that with someone else really kept me accountable. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I think it's it's always really interesting to write out all the duties and the hours that mm. it takes and compare it to the hours that you've got. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm constantly like, oh, I'll just go and see another patient. Mm. And and then sort of wondering why I'm running out the door mm-hmm. to to leave on time because I'll have to go and pick somebody up after after work or something, like and then kind of like oh god I did it again it's like yeah, and I think if you we did a podcast on procrastination mm. and so basically one of the errors that we make with procrastination is we underestimate how long an adverse task is going to take, yeah. right? So we go oh it's only going to take ten minutes to hang, mm. you know, five minutes to hang the washing yeah. And it's going to take 20 minutes, like, because it just takes ages. Like, yeah. you know, and then you go, oh, you know, I never get anything done. It's like, well, you're not budgeting properly. Mm. And that's why you feel like, because you said the examples. Amy's with me. I hope you're listening. <laughs> Listen yeah. to home. I hope you're listening. Okay. Third, third and final problem. No, no reaction to an otherwise difficult circumstance. You feel numb. You feel distant. Mm. Often this is seen as helpful in the health setting. Yeah. Right. And this is a problem. Right. So... People go, oh, you know, I've moved to a place where things just don't affect me anymore. Mm. And uh, actually, that is a big warning sign, right? You're too detached. Yeah. This is a sign of emotional exhaustion. This is your detached protector mode activated. Mm. So if that's what's going on for you, you need to have time out. Mm. Often this means being alone. Often this means having personal projects that you're working on mm. that you are solely in control of this for you and for you only. Talking if you can, not necessarily talking. Mm. So my mind is you need to have some time out and you need to settle because your defenses are up. And so what you need to do is you need to to lower, Mm. lower that so that you can be part of the world, Mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So summarize, and and I'm going to feel like I've said this all the way through, but like developing awareness of your own behaviors, processes, talk them out. One of the things I always hate is like if I get a cold sore, it's like, yeah. damn it, <laughs> I am stressed. You're always so angry when you get a cold uh, sore. It's just, yeah. Anyway, sorry, disclosure for anyone <laughs> hates the idea of those things. Um, or like I get my eye, like I call it bubbling, like mm. like flickers. But like other people have little stress things, like they break out with like stress pimples or mm. whatever. Or you're noticing that you're always going down to get a lemon meringue cake or I don't know, whatever cake is your fancy at, mm. at work. Right? So learning to be realistic and fair on yourself. I'm sorry, 
but you are human. It's How dare you? <laughs> very disappointing. Uh, wasn't necessarily saying that to you, Amy. But you were making eye contact. To our listeners, wherever you are, you are actually human. right? Mm. It's very disappointing that we can't do all the things that we want to do and that we expect ourselves to do. I am sorry. <laughs> but learn to be realistic and fair on yourself and guarantee you, you'll feel better. Mm. right? You'll feel a bit shit that you couldn't do all the things that you wanted to do. But will you be more relaxed? 100%. Mm. Learn to be healthily detached and healthily involved. Mm. Too much, too little, problematic. So we want the Goldilocks amount, right? The Goldilocks thing. And pay attention to all life domains. Many people don't do simple positive activities because they're too busy, Mm. right? So, and this is a common classic problem in medicine, particularly with doctors, Mm. right? Because they're shifts along, they only work with, other doctors, they only socialize with other doctors because they haven't got any time. Their schedule's really, really bad. And they don't engage in things that are enjoyable. Mm. And right. it's kind of built in right from oh, the, the start of their study of kind of like you have to devote your entire life to this thing if you want to make it. It's kind of setting people up right from the start. Well, even, you know, I spend a lot of time at university. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't think I ever really made friends with med students. Mm. Because I never saw them. Mm. They're off, off in their own little bubble. Mm. So, I mean, I think the, the, you know, I've said on this pod before, I'm pretty sure I have, collect Star Wars figures, <laughs> right? Like, because it's just something that tickles little hunters yeah. fancy, right? And that's ideally what you want. You want something that pleases the kid part of you that gets excited about something that doesn't really make a lot of sense, that just kind of is fun. What is it for you? Um, oh. Books. Books. Uh, something kind of crafty. Like there's an mm. odd assortment of craft things yeah. that I'll go through phases of doing. Yeah. There's usually something creative that I'm doing and something that I'm reading. Yeah. Yeah. And swimming. Yeah. So, I mean, it, th- these are things like it's, a, it's not this like optimum level of balance, this sort of BS kinds of thing about balance, but it's about at times you need to dip into stuff. Mm. Right. And at times you don't actually have much time to dip into it yeah. because you are busy, right? That's okay. Do a little bit mm. if you're feeling any of these things. So that's my take on emotional burnout fatigue, mm-hmm. really, which is what to do when patients affect you and work affects you. I'm a practical psychologist. I try and be practical mm. in the way that I go. And this is, and hopefully, people listening have found that practical because it's I, I think yes okay we're doing this in COVID time but I think this is this is a set of information that I think is useful for anyone at any time mm. because it's it's all this stuff is difficult mm. but but as psychologists this is what we think about all the time constantly and and you know if you've got problems you know if you're finding work difficult you need to talk to somebody or you need to do something yourself mm. right don't be gritting and bearing it doesn't work doesn't work Mm. yeah and if you think that it does and you're pleased about it then (laughs) then that's a bit of a problem Mm. so sort of a runaway train kind of Mm. vibe that's it so final thoughts amy i think that people often underestimate the practical stuff you know we often want some higher order magical thing that's going to solve what's going on for us to feel less stressed at work or whatever it might be and, you know, I think that's why things like self-help books 
fly off the shelves because it's kind of like, well, there's got to be some answer. But actually it comes back to those little things a lot of the time of Mm. having people to connect with, of finding something that we can enjoy in amongst the chaos. Mm. And that's the bit that's important. Yeah. And and accepting that you're normal Mm. for being affected by work. Mm. Right. Because I think most people, a lot of professions don't talk about it. And so people feel isolated in the problem. But when you get a team talking about this stuff, then they, there's this huge wave of relief. Mm-hmm. And and with this stuff, it's really, it's it's kind of like, okay, there's a problem. Okay, here are some solutions. Yeah. Right? And it's not generic solutions of like, do yoga at lunchtime. Yeah. Right? It's got to be specific. <laughs> yeah. And, and when you do that, your well-being improves. Mm. So, shall we go to the break? Yeah, let's do that. So this is this, the second time we've recorded the break because normally in the break we, we have a drink and I realized that we didn't actually have a, a drink. No. So happy days. Cheers. Cheers. And um, we're taking our own advice and indulging in some self-care. Yeah. And uh, having a glass of wine. Having a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> we do need to do a pod where we have start the glass of wine at the start of the pod. <laughs> because, uh, and then what? Um, look, we'll see. <laughs> um, have you ever listened to Drunk History? No. Oh, yes, I have. That's that very good. Well, yeah. Drunk so, Psychology. So you can listen to lots of podcasts. You can listen to us on lots of podcast apps. But if you mm. are interested in knowing more about Amy and I and Two Shrinks Pod, twoshrinkspod.com. I have put up on the website a new page that's just listen mm-hmm. with a link to a bunch of the different apps so people don't have to go per episode. They mm-hmm. can just... Click on the one that takes their fancy mm-hmm. and go that way. So, yes, the website, when we're always sort of having a look and seeing if we can improve it, but um, you can look at it by episode. Uh, you can. There's also a topics page. So, if you're interested in seeing what we've done and say if you're, we did a series on the personality disorders and we did a series on, there was like a how-to kind of like, you know, if you suffer from social anxiety or you've got mm. an anger, anger problem or things like that. So, and, and there's also a list of our things we came across. So, yes. But um, what we really like it is if people can rate, review the show or just tell someone about it. So if you're a healthcare worker and you're liking this show, tell someone about it. Hmm. If you can. If you don't like it, then... Yeah, Maybe give a go yeah, Don't just keep quiet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's best not to share that kind of stuff. <laughs> anyway. Well, uh, let's go to things we came across. Sounds good. As always, we want to wrap up the show with things we came across. This is the odd article that you stumble across or in my case often go searching for because I have a question. Yep. Are you going to kick us off? Uh, I think it's your turn. Where are you taking us? It was more, it more came out of curiosity for me. Yep. So I recently saw my little niece who's three mm-hmm. and while we were playing, she stuck her tongue out to concentrate mm-hmm. and it got me thinking, is there a reason why we do that particularly kids because they all seem to do it neural activation of the uh homunculus that's it no no well because the 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 tongue the tongue is related 
to next to where the hand to is. To the where yeah. the hand is. Yeah. There's some odd theories about it, yeah. but there was an experiment to test this out. Oh, okay. Done five years ago. Okay. And so they... By who and where? By Forrester and Rodriguez in Cognition. Slip of the tongue, implications for evolution and language development. Mm -hmm. They wanted to look at four-year-olds and see whether four-year-olds stuck their tongue out during cognitive tasks and try and work out what was going on there. So they used videos that they'd used for another study a random assortment of videos of four-year-olds who were completing a range of tasks and counted the amount of times they stuck their tongue out. What kind of tasks? So there was a mixture of cognitive tests, motor, fine motor tests where they had to you know, manipulate blocks and mm-hmm. things to match and uh, storytelling tests. So it was an, like an assortment of individual tests rather than a complete battery that fit within Mm -hmm. one test so let me guess the motor tasks had more tongue producing yes but yeah i know right (laughs) (laughs) so apparently there's a few theories one is the proximity theory one is that because we get so much sensory input from our tongue when we're speaking Mm -hmm. and existing in the world that by sticking it out you kind of block that sensory interference Mm -hmm. the other is one that right from the start these authors like this definitely isn't it but we're going to list it anyway which was that as babies when you're feeding babies stick their tongue out to kind of indicate they're finished feeding and that somehow that then plays a part in indicating something when they're thinking which Mm. the authors kind of went it's a bit Um, there's also chimp research that they make noises that match their hand movements, which suggests it's close mm-hmm. cortex-wise. Yeah. So, but, um, but with the proximity thing, what we're trying to say there is that like if one brain area is activated, then the, the area next to it is more likely to be activated. Yeah. And so the tongue is very complex. Like, so the movement of the tongue for speech is incredibly complex, fine motor movement. Mm. And hand like use of your hands is mapped right next to that in the in the brain so um if you look up the homunculus the homunculus yeah um you get this like really odd map of the the body that so it's not like it's not like the um your toes is mapped next to your your calf is Mm. mapped next to your thigh Mm. like it it doesn't it doesn't map that and the size of each area is very yeah varies depending on how much fine yeah like the trunk the trunk of your body's got not much sensation whereas your mouth when your tips yeah yeah. exactly so they give the example of how if you try and get someone to speak and say particular words while at the same time of doing hand motions that are the opposite that their speech gets disrupted. So if you have to say go while doing a stop hand signal, for example, mm. people have trouble. Yeah. There's a delay in how quickly they're able to do that, particularly little ones. So they did this experiment, looked at 14 kids who were around four, four and a half, bunch of different cognitive tests. <laughs> in the space of 50 minutes, each kid did between 16 and 49 tongue protrusions. Mm-hmm. It's a fair bit, like it's one a minute for the ones who are sticking their tongue out a lot. Um, all the kids did it and the majority of the 
tongue sticking out was to the right hand side so the same side as their dominant hand all Mm. of them were right handers what they found that it happened the most in a task where so the researcher gave them instructions where if they tapped then the kid had to knock and if the researcher knocked they had to tap so it was like a impulse impulse inhibiting kind of task had an aspect of communication you had to watch the other person and then do it back that was the task that had the most tongue sticking out compared to any of the others so it wasn't just fine motor there was some aspect of communication in there as well so their thinking was the tasks that had it sort of tongue sticking out the most were the ones where the kids had to verbalize in their head about what they were doing so like okay so now i have to knock for example and so there's some aspect there that's communication not just it's side by side in our brain is the gist Mm -hmm. yeah so i'm going to explain that to my little niece and i'm sure she'll find it fascinating (laughs) (laughs) but yeah there there you go so tongue sticking out is communication plus proximity yeah yeah. yeah, like neuroscience was not my strong point, but like I did a lot of stuff about that stuff. Proximity? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's all to do with ha- and the handedness. And the mm. did, we should do I want to do a handedness point. Yeah, I know. We keep talking about that. I'm yeah. left-handed. Yeah. Amy is a fascist right-handed, so that's yeah. fine. Exactly. So when we were going to record this episode, mm-hmm. which was about a, a week, two weeks ago, I had not had a haircut no you had had your first haircut <laughs> post lockdown and you can hear the venom in his voice <laughs> look so this is directed at me having a haircut look I'll, look I'll explain the context and then then yes so <laughs> melbourne 77 day lockdown day five of the lockdown i was due for a haircut mm-hmm. so i was 77 days minus five days plus six weeks right yeah. it was the time you I were had woolly haircut. And then plus a couple of weeks post desperate freak mm. out. I've now had a haircut. And I said to the, said to my hairdresser, she's like, "What do you want? I'm just short on the sides? <laughs> I don't care what you do on the top. Just shave it." And she's like, "Yes, <laughs> she had the best time. It's really fun." So anyway, so I looked up jealousy. <laughs> ah, okay, I see. And um, I found a article by Bastos and colleagues, the University of Auckland. Mm-hmm. It's in the journal Psychological Science in uh, 2021. Mm-hmm. So, title of the article: mm-hmm. Dogs mentally represent jealousy inducing social interactions. <laughs> Perfect. So, continuing on, the two shrinks uh, occasional delve into animal <laughs> psychology. <laughs> Jealousy may have evolved to protect valuable social bonds from interlopers, but some researchers have suggested this is linked to self-awareness and theory of mind, leading to claims that it's unique to humans. Hang on, are you and the dog in this scenario? <laughs> no comment, Donaldson. And so this is this has led to claims that jealousy is unique to humans, right? Mm-hmm. And does jealousy emerge as a direct consequence of cognitive capacities, yada, yada, yada? And they say, you know, well, dogs are an excellent model species for testing this hypothesis, right? Given that social bond between dogs and their owners shows similarities between the relationships of their mothers and infants mm-hmm. and humans. Sure. There was two references for that statement, which I thought was funny. <laughs> anyway, so... Aren't author A and author B's experiences with look, their dogs? I don't know. Probably. So the literature to date suggests that dogs might react to jealousy-inducing situations as humans do with a constellation of different behaviours that vary among individuals. The current research, Amy, 
does not provide conclusive evidence of this, right? That these differences in behavior due to jealousy because no study has unambiguously mapped jealous behavior to jealousy-inducing situations. Okay. Important topic. No one's spent enough time making dogs jealous. That's it. Got it. Although later on they referenced Darwin and Darwin had said this, like 1870s. Anyway, so they say, if these changes in behavior are a consequence of jealousy, then they should emerge only when an owner interacts with a social rival rather than a consequence of the mere presence of a conspecific. Do you know what conspecific means? I'd never heard of this word before. No. It's a member of the same species. So basically, huh. they're saying that there were some prior... C-O-N? Yep, yeah. Huh. C-O-N. So basically, they were saying that there's prior research that has shown that they think that dogs elicit jealousy behavior. Mm-hmm. So when an owner act, interacts with another dog or something, but there was a lot of confounding variables yada yada and so they were sort of saying well that the dog acts funny when there's no dog there but that if the dog's a social rival mm. right so if the, their owner is interacting with that dog in a yeah. particular way like petting it or whatever so they investigated whether three human signatures of jealous behavior is seen in dogs so bear with me just here so first is human infants are jealous of the mothers interacting with a potential rival mm-hmm. but not an inanimate object secondly Humans react specifically to jealousy-inducing interactions rather than the presence or absence of a potential rival, right? So it has to be... So it has to be an interaction rather than just another person. And finally, jealous behaviour should only emerge when the interaction between the dog's owner and the rival has to be mentally represented by the subject rather than only when it's directly visible. Mm -hmm. Right, so you can be jealous if you hear about it or if you can Mm. imagine it. Yeah. Interesting to try and do that in dogs. Yeah. So they measured the desire to approach. Okay. Um, the desire to approach the, like how hard the dog pulled on a lead, mm-hmm. right? That was attached to a force measure yep. when they saw the owner interacting with a fake dog, mm-hmm. right? That's what this is about. All with a large fleece cylinder, which is an enamel object. Yeah. Methods. Hats off to the researchers for literally the most adorable thing I've ever come across in a piece of research. I've read a lot of research. I've mm-hmm. done a doctorate. I've almost completed a master's degree. I've done an undergraduate and an honours. Like, like I've, done a lo- I've read a lot, Yeah. right? There was 18 dogs and they've listed all their names. <laughs> so we've got Vanilla, Freddy, Bronx, Loki, Maverick, Ruby, Tobbs, Tui, Nelly, Kaya, Chica, Pepper, Dora, Roxy, Hutch, Tui, Lulu and DJ. I have a question. Yes. Aren't participants supposed to be anonymous in research? Well, <laughs> this <laughs> that leads on to my other thing, which is the owners provided written informed consent to, to participate in the study. Not the uh, dogs. No word of whether the dogs <laughs> were even asked, right? Like yeah, what's Not going even on like here? A, some sort of form of verbal consent? Yep. Just I don't a know. bark? That's it. <laughs> anyway, so... Selection criteria. <laughs> subjects, Full legs. <laughs> subjects could participate in the study if they'd been the owner's household for a minimum of six months, they were not aggressive toward other dogs, showed no signs of discomfort when attached to a tethered r- leash, mm-hmm. and had never seen a large, realistic-looking fake dog. <laughs> <laughs> how did you... How did they assess for that? Uh, just, look, look, I'm not... Self-report? Sh- look, look. Yeah, I'm, I'm, look, you could contact the um, authors. I intend um, to. So. <laughs> what about a fleecy tube? 
So some of the details were great. They used a fake dog. Mm-hmm. So so they set it up so that the dog would be brought into the room and tethered something that would like measure how hard it was pulling. Mm-hmm. And then it would watch the owner either interacting with a fake looking dog or like a, a fleece cylinder, right? Mm-hmm. Looking like it was petting it. Mm-hmm. So they used a fake dog to standardize the reaction. Okay. And the I was wondering about that. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you would think with dogs being so, yeah, scent focused that smell would have a... Yep. So there's evidence in the literature <laughs> that large plastic models are convincing at a distance of three metres. Okay. And so they used fake realistic looking dogs five metres away. Okay. And Can I tell you a dog anecdote that may or may not be relevant? <laughs> Probably. So my mum has a moodle that looks like a sheep. What's a moodle? Maltese poodle. Okay. Yep. He looks like a sheep. Yep. At the dog park, the herding dogs <laughs> will see him from a distance and they'll get down low and they'll like run <laughs> across and they get to about that distance and then stand up and look kind of confused. Yeah. <laughs> and then slowly approach him like, hang on a minute. But you're a dog. You're not, not a, a sheep. Yeah, right. So Could be. it yep. checks out yeah, is check. all I'm saying. It <laughs> <laughs> checks out. Well, I, I was going to like jealousy-induced behavior in dogs. I've certainly heard oh, it yeah. and seen it a lot. Yep. There were some family dogs, two Labradors, Gussie and Tess. And Tess was a white Labrador and Gus was a brown Labrador. And Gus was brought home as a puppy and Tess apparently like walked off and like stood in the corner and went, hey. <laughs> 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 so they were like, what Love is it. this? Okay. So, I, I've said before, I've, I've, I've read a lot of research, mm-hmm. right? But? Now, you, you, you sat whilst I was finishing reading this article, <laughs> didn't you? Uh-huh. It took me half an hour to read the procedure. With a lot of, of this, sighing there was and a lot hair of sighing. pulling. It was the most poorly written. I just could not understand. Like, a diagram would have been great as to understand what's going there on. There are... Then, but there are three pictures of a dog. There are three pictures of a dog. That's great. And then, and then you get to the results section, and then they like succinctly explain what they did in the experiment. It's like, oh my god! Which is at just, the point where you screamed out. I did. Okay, <laughs> I've written half an hour. Underline, underline. Um, okay, so there was two conditions: dog condition. The dog observed their owner sitting next to a realistic-looking fake dog. Mm-hmm. Fake dog was then occluded by a barrier. The owner petted and spoke to the fleece-covered shelf behind a barrier mm-hmm. while the fleece cylinder remained in full view of the subject. And then in the cylinder condition, the owner petted and spoke to a visible fleece cylinder mm-hmm. of approximately the same texture and size as the fake dog whilst the fake dog remained in full view of the subject. So basically, you've got okay. one, one, one scenario where it looks like the owner is interacting with the dog and it looks like it's interacting with... A cylinder. S- s- and in up. both, the opposite one is within view. I think so. It sounds. Yeah. That's what it sounds and like. Yeah. yeah, and so they measured it by how hard it was pulling, and that mm-hmm. was that was the thing, right? So basically, dogs pulled significantly harder in the in the dog condition than in the cylinder condition. Sure, they were probably concerned about why their dog parent was patting a fluffy yeah. tube. Oh, well, they were jealous, yeah. right? Um, and uh, and then they did like a, a final confirmation manipulation check trial. I'm not going to try and explain it. Okay. <laughs> anyway, but basically, basically, it, they concluded that that dogs were not simply seeking to gain visual as- access. It was actually about jealousy, wanting to intervene. Yeah, yeah. wanting to interact. Also, they videotaped the dogs. Mm-hmm. 
So 14 out of 15 dogs performed conspecific sniffing. So basically, like, so they were saying that they took this to mean that the dogs thought that it was, that the owner was interacting with a real dog. Okay. Yep. Okay. I look, I'm not really sure. I know. I've look. I've underlined some more stuff, but like, really, like, it's not much more complicated than that. The dogs definitely were exhibiting jealous behaviour. They were able to connect the dots and infer that the owner's actions were directed towards a hidden rival. Mm -hmm. Dogs can actually mentally represent stuff. And they were saying that this has got important implications for dog welfare, given it suggests that dogs are incapable of inferring unseen social interactions that can threaten their bond with their owner. Ah, yeah. So you get home from seeing a dog mm. on the street and you smell like that dog yeah. and then hand your san- dog's Hand sanitise, like... hand sanitise yeah. before you get inside. And then suggest that dogs may live much richer inner lives than we often give them credit for. Good for them. Yeah, good for them. So anyway, they did reference Darwin. I said, here, look at this. Darwin <laughs> was one of the first uh, researchers to suggest that dogs show jealous behaviour in 1871. Wow. Stating that everyone has seen how jealous a dog is of his master's affection if lavished on any other creature. Hey, Darwin. <laughs> so, qualitative research, and then uh, 140 years later, quantitative support. There you go. <laughs> Dogs and jealousy done, Amy. Yeah. I love Darwin. Right. <laughs> well, what, you've got a Darwin anecdote, <laughs> don't you? I mean, I don't know if it's mine. Well. But, but my favourite story about Darwin is that they tried to bring back giant turtles from the Galapagos back to the UK to kind of, you know, test them out, name them, give them all the fancy Latin names, all that sort of stuff. And they kept on struggling to bring them back because they were so delicious. (laughs) (laughs) And Darwin's journals about them are great. It's like, you know, it's creamier than butter and better than roast chicken. (laughs) Could you imagine a Darwin food blog? It'd be like, you know, when you log on to the like they've got this like long personal history, and then they've got the recipe like yeah, seven I pages. I left down. my mother. Is it? It was so like, meaningful. The sun to was setting in the Galapagos. <laughs> blah 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 blah. It's like, oh my god, just tell me how to roast a bloody turtle. Um, all right, all right. We will catch you next Thanks time. For Thanks for listening. I think we rambled a bit, but uh, it's been good. See you later. See ya.